There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Well, 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 Max. You thought you could get away with it. You and Bumpy planning to... Bump me off and take over the show for your own? What makes you think your lousy, stinking plan could ever succeed? You think I don't know about that $10 million policy you took out on me? The one that says if I die in any kind of pudding-related accident, you and the pony get to collect double? <laughs> well, I did. Oh, boy, did I ever. See, the pony, me and the pony, we've been playing you. It was you on the line. Hook set deep in your cheek because I never signed that policy. <laughs> no, it was you. That contract you signed, the one I told you was for us promoting Deep House 2 and Rogue Warfare 5, that was a dummy. And so were you. <laughs> Bumpy and it, well, we love each other. And there's just not room for you. No, no. From now on, it's just going to be me and and, uh, um, Bumpy, what, what are you doing with that forty-five? And, and how the hell are you able to hold it? <laughs> Bumpy, I was, I was only kidding. I was just trying to secure you oats for the rest of your life. Bumpy, it was always about you. You and no one else except Max Mike Movies. Oh, Bumpy, <laughs> watch out for that cliff. Nah, he'll be back and maybe he'll have learned an important lesson. But you know who doesn't have to learn anything? That's the main host, Max just sign right here. Levine, give us an indemnity, Max. Okay. That I'll, was it, I'll huh? see your indemnity <laughs> and double it. Oh, oh. oh, wow, my sides. And I am Mike. Wait, what am I signing? Loose. We're in the middle of our noir series, Walk the Dark Street. And we've got a biggie for this week's show. The 1944 Billy Wilder classic, Double Indemnity. It's black and white and dead all over. But our show isn't, especially when we get to your answers to our poll question. Last time, if you recall, and I didn't, we'd asked y'all what watching a mystery movie, when watching a mystery movie, are you a guesser? How watching a mystery movie? Then watching a mystery movie. Why watching a mystery movie? Enough. Nope. When watching a mystery movie, are you a guesser or a non-guesser? <laughs> I won't keep us in suspense, because here are your answers. Nick Hoffman was first up with, quote, I instinctively try, but actually wish I were able to relax and let it unfold, end quote. Well, cool. Thanks, Nick. Next was Val Coons, though who she is is a mystery to me. Yuck, yuck. Seriously, cue footsteps, everyone. She posted, quote, for the most part, Yes. Being a mystery writer, I like to see how other writers arrive at the solution. I usually don't care for the ones that follow the perpetrator. There's no fun in that for me. The one exception is Columbo. Yes, I know it's a TV show and not a movie. I love figuring out just when he's figured out the killer. End quote. See, I knew she was going to say that. Thanks, Val. Ben Carl leapt in like a wombat with, quote, mm. I don't. I prefer to give myself as much as possible to the storytellers and live in the moment that they're presenting. If it's a well-done story, there should be a lot more to it than just the mystery. After the revelation, I may go back and see if it was possible to have deduced the outcome as an audience member, end quote. Well, it's a very analytical way to look at it. Thanks, Javi. Chrissy Becker-Krinitsky offered, quote, I prefer to let it all unfold and be along for the ride. Sometimes I have theories and think I've figured it out, but it's never the goal to outsmart the story, end quote. Oh, coolness. Thanks, Chrissy. I'm going to pause to clean my glasses and look concerned. Thanks for stepping in, Max. I probably will edit that out. All right. Adam Mark, in a very brief response, said, quote, Yes, of course I try to figure it out. It separates the mystery fan from the casual watcher, in my view, end quote. And in my view, thanks for the answer. Dave. Dave! Can't seem to get my Dave started today. Dave! Was not brief, which is good. He wrote, quote, It's a sign of a weak script if I am second-guessing the plot. It means that I don't care about the characters. The characters, the setting, any dramatic scenes, the heroic journey of the detective, any clever dialogue, and the way the writer creates pathos are more, all more important to me. I assume you are building up to the big sleep with this question, because that one has such an intricate plot that I often forget who did it. Well, you weren't alone on that one. Yeah. <laughs> See the writer. 
But that story, I give the Bogart movie a perfect 10, but the actual book in 11 has so much going on that the actual murder doesn't drive the story for me, end quote. Whew. So this book goes to 11. No. But we always love those complex thoughts and uh, see last week's episode on The Big Sleep. Thanks, Dave. Vince, master of the betuxedoed file of the North's opinion was expressed (laughs) thusly over to our website. Quote, For me, it depends on how interested I am in the movie as it goes along. If it's a really clever puzzle, I can't help but try and solve the mystery. If it seems super cliche or obvious, but is still good in other ways, I am less likely to make the effort. Hey, Max, come over and we'll have that Herzog Film Festival. We'll start with Even Dwarves Started Small. They crucify a monkey in it, end quote. Wow. Crucify a monkey, you say? (laughs) Hey, what are you looking at me like that for? (laughs) I am not your little monkey. That, uh, but, you, but you will die for my sins. Yeah, yeah, I know. That does sound delightful, but uh, pity yeah. you're off in that uh, foreign country somewhere. Thanks, Vince. Yes, and sadly, as we, we all know, Canada cannot be reached from any other part of the world by any means known to man. It's ocean locked. For freshness. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Max? Do you detect or let the story flow over you like Oreos in a windstorm? What? <laughs> it's a it's a very common simile, you, you know. No, it it really is not. Um, I, yeah, I am. First off, I'm very bad at def- at figuring out who done it, and second off, I don't want to. I like to watch the movie, and I honestly like to be surprised if it's a twist or. I basically no. I don't try to solve the mystery. I. I like to just go with the flow of the story, and like Dave says, if the characters are interesting, I don't really care who did it. You mean like in Ten Little Indians, where the twist is it's actually done by Ten Little Indians? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, don't look you? up the original title of that one. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, let's that, not. Just, just call it, but and then there were none. That was yeah. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Do you uh, are you a detecting type? I am right with you. I have a slightly uh, better reason. Um, I know you sort of hinted at this, but I try not to guess because I'm usually wrong and I don't want to feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would. Yeah. If it's a good story, right, it's written well, then I'm not going to, I never can figure it out. I'm just not one of those people that's good with those things and clues. I'm very observant, but I just can't seem to put them together to make an actual yeah. solution. Yep. So by I, default, I yeah. I do want to uh, call back to Val pointing out about my favorite TV detective. And as this podcast will be released on Monday, this, that, this Monday is my favorite holiday, Columbo Day. Max. And I want everyone to just do that one more thing for each other, because that's what Columbo's all about. Take your Basset Hound for a walk, drive your Peugeot, Max. you know, all the typical Columbo Day things. Max. Get yourself a big sloppy sandwich with the Max. family. Have a wife Max. or a husband that you, that what? Columbus Day, which is now thankfully being referred to as Indigenous Peoples Day. It generally celebrated Columbus the explorer. No, no, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. <sighs> How many times it's, did I fire yeah. you last week? It wasn't enough, obviously. I think it was a record. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that's all well and good. And maybe you couldn't guess, but we do indeed want to hear from you again regarding this little subject. Lots, lots we want to hear. What was the worst movie viewing experience you ever had? Was it the movie itself, mm. the venue, the patrons, or a combination of all three? Do let us know. We always love those answers. Answers what we love to eat. Bite they little heads off. Nibble, nibble on, on they, they tiny, tiny feet. feet. But well, my the, answer's pretty easy. Any movie where I was sitting next to Mike. <laughs> well, lucky for you, that doesn't happen very often, does it? Not anymore, but we, the scars linger. We call him the gas monster. But <laughs> for the moment, we must put such dainty subjects aside so we can talk about... The facts. Double indemnity. Budget. 980,000 buckaroos. One of the wow. cheapest movies we've actually done here on the show. The yeah. next film, I think, in, in order of cost would have been Deep House, which was a million dollars. Yeah, it was like one million, right? This was like only $20,000 more. Yeah, something like that. Take, yeah. well, that's another story. Five million big ones. Wow. Whew. This was a success, which explains double indemnity <laughs> to the indemnitying. Y- yes. See last week's episode for that joke. We almost, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but there it it's is. It's a running gag. Is that what it is? Well, shoot it. It yep. won't run as and far. And here, here's one I'm going to put over on your mouth. Yes. <laughs> 
We almost didn't get one of the biggest names in this movie, Edward G. Robinson. Seems he thought the part was a little below him, being third lead. Thing is, he also realized that he was making more than either Fred McMurray or Barbara Stanwyck and was doing a good deal less, so go Eddie! Yeah. Speaking of Chandler, which we weren't, but now we are, he decided to play hardball in this job, stating flatly that he wouldn't do it for less than 150 a week. This came as a big surprise to the management, who was going to offer him 750 a week. <laughs> uh, <sighs> Good one, Ray Ray. Yeah, we'll come back to Ray Ray. This wasn't based on a Chandler book, but the screenplay was partially written by him, and written well it was. So well, the author of the book, James M. Kane, wishes he'd written some of the things that made it onto the screen, including the ending and the dictation portion of the screenplay. So Stanwyck, now hold your horses, Max, I bet you didn't know this, was not... A natural blonde. <laughs> I know. What? Big surprise. And the wig she wears is... <gasps> well, <Can't> breathe. <laughs> take a deep breath. That wig is... Um, well, it's a wig. Eventually, yeah. oh. even Billy Wilder realized how horrible it looked, but by the time he did, enough footage had been shot that it was too late to change it out. Pity. This movie is based on a book, which I mentioned, uh, which itself was based on a real-life story. In that, a woman plotted with her boyfriend to get rid of her husband, on whom she had indeed taken out a life insurance policy with double indemnity. Mm. In the real-life trial, which book author James M. Kane attended, the two were quickly caught and prosecuted with the boyfriend getting the electric chair. Whee! Yeah. yeah. And I guess the the uh, woman got the manual chair. I think she got the gas chamber, but they were uh. they were gentle to la gentler to lady uh perpetrators. Oh, yeah. A lot more then. gas chamber, a lot more gentle. Yeah. Supposedly on the streets back in the 40s, a yeah. woman wearing an anklet was telling the world that she's married but open to offers. No idea oh. if right or left means something different if there's color signals or hanky codes. Look it up, kids. There is yet another example of Billy Wilder casting against type. Fred McMurray had to be browbeaten into taking the part as he was much more used to playing nice guys. Named Steve. <laughs> he was a dad. His name was Steve. Wilder was not a nice man. This movie was up for quite a few Academy Awards, but the Oscars were swept that year by Going My Way. How did Wilder react? Well, when the director of that film, Leo McCary, got up to accept his award, Wilder tripped him. <laughs> oh! Yeah. Oddly, and with no evidence I can recall, this movie takes place in 1938, even though the film was released in 1944. The look of confusion you can hear yeah. from Max's face is, in fact, exactly what he should have. No, no, I, I knew it took place in 1938. He says it at some point. I don't remember it at all. And I'm yeah, like, no, I'm, he lists the date. I remember thinking, wait, why are you setting it? Eight years, six years before it happened. Well, for once, Eight. Max is right. <laughs> uh, and yes, in case you didn't know, or you probably did, that man sitting outside Barton Key's office reading a newspaper is, in fact, author Raymond Chandler. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm sure you knew that. That's actually the only footage they have of him ever, besides huh. a, a home movie somewhere. Yeah, uh, Chandler and Wilder did not get along. Among many other things that came between the two was Chandler's treatment by the executives in the studio. He said, quote, The first picture I worked on was nominated for an Academy Award, if that means anything, but I was not even invited to the press review held right in the studio, end quote. However, he was kept on salary all weeks of filming and had a clause that forbid script changes without his approval, which was simply not done in Hollywood at the time, or probably even now. Wilder was not impressed and offered, quote, we didn't invite him? How could we? He was under the table, drunk at Lucy's, end quote. <laughs> Interestingly, oh. this relationship would cause Wilder to look to his next film, The Lost Weekend, and try and make Chandler a little clearer to Chandler. Oh. Yeah. Which is a weekend apparently about a drunk writer. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's it for me, but Max, do you have anything... Well, not really, although it's hard to keep referring to Raymond Chandler as just Chandler, because all I keep thinking of, could I write any more of a mystery? Chandler huh? from Friends. From what? 
Friends. Oh, it's a television never... show. It's a television show, Mike, on that strange box you have in the living room that shows mm. the talking pictures. Nope, I just have Zelda on mine. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't have this Friends thing. What are Friends? What use would I have for that? <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, we should uh, move on to... See, there's this insurance salesman, uh, regular Joe, Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray, is just trying to make a buck. He stops off to see a client, and whom does he see instead... But the client's wife, Mrs. Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. Well, va 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 voom! This can only mean one thing, especially as she's advertising with that sexy anklet of hers, that she not only wants to take a ride on the good ship Walter Neff, she must surely want to engage his help in a plot to not only insure her husband, but bump him off, collect, and escape into the sunset. But surely Walter must be reading things incorrectly, and initially it seems he is. Until he isn't. This is indeed what Mrs. Dietrichson wants. And Walter, he is a fish on the line. And so the couple plots, with Walter providing the inside information they'll need to concoct the perfect murder and keep it from the suspicions of Walter's boss, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson. There are a couple of complications, but they're quickly dealt with, and soon... The husband is gone, and it seems like it's going to be smooth sailing for the team of Dietrichson and Neff. Until it isn't. See, Keyes has this little man in his stomach that tells him when something's not right on a claim, and this one smells like last week's prune whip. The noose begins to tighten, and things are, well, as this is noir, not all what they seem. Is Walter being played as a chump? Is there a true love in the heart of a cold-blooded spouse? Will they finally be able to get together and run off to wherever they were going to run off to? This is Noir, baby. What do you think? The film. Well, Max, you finally mm. get to say, I know, wake up. <laughs> That's always yeah, the tough right, thing about where? hosting. It's like one person gets to sit there and talk, and the other stares pleasantly into their computer screen. <laughs> Meow, 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 What's usually what's going on in my head. What was the first time you saw this film? Do you remember? Do you even remember why you saw it? I know I saw it. I think I saw it on videotape about 500 years ago. Max's sense of time is a little odd. Yeah. So just at some point you rented it. Yeah. Maybe yeah, back when I, you I were first know, able to rent movies just to I rent think, something. I think so. Just uh, I went on a big noir kick for a while back in the 80s, and I think I rented it then. And I didn't. Re- I, I remembered some of it, but not all of it. Yeah. Well, by then, <clears> you, what about pro- you? you had probably turned into that big Three Sons fan that you are today. That's right. Uh, Chip, Ernie, and the other one. <laughs> I don't I I know the last name I, was Douglas, and I don't remember his name either. Yeah, I, I just remember Chip and Ernie for Bob. some reason. I think it's Bob. Bob, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think I ever watched my three sons, like, ever. Chip and Emil? I've just seen people make fun of them. <laughs> I think I remember it being on, and I think I remember it being boring. It is very strange to see Fred McMurray playing a hard case. Yeah. Because, I, you know, he's the nutty professor. He's... <laughs> He is. He, What's he this flubber uh, doing here? Yeah, he was a Disney dad. He was in a bunch of them, and he was always playing the slightly goofy, sweet but lovable, you know, father figure, not some guy going around calling women baby. Baby, what is this baby? <laughs> well, does that mean that you would like to get to talking about the actors? Yes, let us speak. Well, well, hang on. You didn't no. say. Have you, had you oh. seen this before? I did only once, and it was. I think we. I mentioned this last episode where I got COVID and then suddenly got into uh, this. Oh, this noir it was kick. The same like, time frame. I think so. It's like I want to see noir uh, and stuff like that. And I rewatched Enemy of the State and stuff like that, and I, that's right where I started watching things like The Conversation, which is why we did that series, mm-hmm. which was actually really good. See our entire yeah. episode on The Conversation, which is what we're having right now. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I remember it being pretty good. Uh, Fever Dream State didn't remember that much of it, but yeah. Yeah, I had to remind, Mike was very surprised when he watched it that it did not in fact star Barney, Barney the Dinosaur. I don't think I was at all surprised about that, no. Uh, no Barney But yes, let's talk about the cast. Well, let's start off with Fred himself. So, Fred, mm-hmm. yeah. how does Fred do as a... I, my note was, um, Walter Neff is a wolf. And I capitalized all four letters because that is what he is. 
Yeah. How is he as he, that? Eh, Interesting. He's okay. He's okay. Uh, I think he tries really hard. Okay. The problem is that's what it feels like, that he is trying really hard. It doesn't seem to be... There are guys like Bogart or Robert Mitchum who pull off that... <sighs> You know, you don't realize that I've that you're already in love with me or that I've already beaten the crap out of you, but I have. And they can do that without even trying. Fred McMurray, he's trying. And, you know, it's like that, God love him, he's trying. Huh. I actually disagree. I actually really? found that he wasn't tough, but he was slimy. And the thing that's really interesting to me about this is that the movie kind of depends on you not liking the character, right? Because when mm. I'm mean, sure he walks in and he's dictating this thing and, the, and we're supposed to feel bad because he's obviously dying. But when he tells you what he did and we see him, rea like he walks into this woman's house and he knows that she's the wife of a client because he, he didn't, I don't even know if he knew that the client was married. But he sees her, yeah, he the first thing he does. Um, well, no, because he was there for the uh, driving stuff. He wasn't, Doesn't matter. Auto policy, she would be on the policy. Yeah. She, if she's if she ever drove, if she the car, drove she well, that's the thing. We don't know that she does. She doesn't seem to ever get a, get out. But he certainly never met her, regardless. Right. But he walks in, and it's uh, just short of uh, Tex Avery. It's like a Tex Avery cartoon. He nearly goes totally straight, you know, and his tongue hangs tongue out, falling out, hitting himself on the head with a mallet. Yeah, and. You inst I personally instantly disliked the character because he's slimy. And the reason I think that he works is that he still feels sincere to me, and he's not trying to tough guy his way through. Now, the question I'll have for later is about the lust they supposedly feel for each other, and that I want to come back to because that's, I think, a different question. I think playing slimy, you also understand why he's been in this job for a long time and hasn't really gone. He says, I like being a salesman later on, but you also get the impression that Keyes is a rare friend. Look at his apartment. It's not really nothing to write home about. So I, I don't know. I bought Fred McMurray and I thought he worked, did very okay, well. And this is yeah. also, again, Wilder casting against type, which is something I wish happened more often because I think it often works really well. Then we have Barbara Stanwyck. A uh, little-known mm -hmm. actor who made, I think, this film and nothing else. She never appeared uh, on screen again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was a, shall we say, big valley in her career that, after that. <laughs> well, among other things. I mean, she was one of the she femme was, She was nominated for four Oscars. You know, this she was a big deal. Yeah. I gotta say, that wig drove me insane. <laughs> It, was uh, just, it didn't bother me. Didn't bother me at all. I didn't I'm think so it was used a wig. To bad hair in those movies. Well, I didn't even think it was a wig. I just was like, who cut her hair? She did. Yeah. What? I didn't is, think it was a wig either. I just thought it was a bad dye job. It also, quite honestly, in a lot of shots, made her not really that attractive. Yeah. When she's lit well, I think she's she's that person that everyone's expecting her to be. That Barbara Stanwyck, but I don't know. I think she had a real sensuality about her. It didn't matter how she was lit. How did you feel of her playing this part? How did she? How well did she do? I think she did a pretty good job. Uh, I I am not the greatest Barbara Stanwyck fan. I think she's a little limited in her range. Okay, but I got to say, with this, she pulls off some really subtle moves. The bit where Walter is murdering her husband, who is sitting right next to her in the car, and we do not see him break the guy's neck. The camera is focused entirely on her. And the way her face barely changes, because you can tell she's got herself completely under control, but just this little look of satisfaction was really well done and really both impressive and disturbing. I want to say that Dietrichson is the best manipulator we've had since Bridget O'Shaughnessy in the Maltese Falcon. I mm. That part, Mary Astor, every time I watch that show, I'm more and more delighted by her performance because... He every point Bogart tries to corner her and say, "Ah, you're lying, sweetheart." She's like, well, of course I'm lying, but then again, I always do this thing. And yeah. you're like, "No, she's lying about that too." And I don't know. I found her really delightful, but this character is just as manipulative. Is she's? It's just Mary Astor had a, just this extra little delight to her that I liked. But I thought she did a very good job too. I think, however, honestly, the star of this film, in a way, is Edward G. Robinson. He is certainly, he has the most charisma. I'm sorry, he has the most screen presence. Whatever you say about Robinson, 
Mr. Friendly Witness. He was. Oh, he was had, he? Yes, he was. Oh. Patui. Yeah. Yeah. He had real presence. And he could just, when he's on screen, he commands it. And it's funny to see him. In effect, every in every conversation, he dominates Fred McMurray, who's like three feet taller than he is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and they don't hide that. It's no. not like okay, every time I'm in the room, he has to be sitting down or he's standing on a box or something. McMurray is standing over him, but he's not towering over him because he is dwarfed in a lot of ways by Robinson. He's Robinson also- has a lot more personal power about him. He's also arguably the only sympathetic character in the entire movie. He is. The guy, he's absolutely, he's scrupulously honest. He's incredibly good at his job. Yeah. And he, that's also, I mean, we'll talk about this in a bit. We're dealing with insurance people. Yeah. You know, not not detectives, not soldiers, not spies, insurance salesmen. Yeah. And- uh, not exactly, you know... Action stars or noir stars, usually. I'm we'll going to be to that. an actuary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I, I agree. I think uh, Robinson is is the best performance in the movie. And he's also a friend to our main character. Where I can't even say protagonist because he kind of isn't. He's not exactly an... I guess he's an anti-hero? No, but he's, he's not trying to do anything good. He's not doing using well, bad means for good things. He is the protagonist in that he's the one we see the most. He's the yeah. one that the narrative is focused on. Yeah, although when he first says, My little man tells me, I'm like, You're what?! Oh, yeah. right, it's 44. That's not what he's referring to. Yeah, Whew. yeah, that, that's that's a different little man there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's funny. There's some points where he's actually funny. And you do really like him, even at the end, when he's like, I can't be friends with you anymore. Spoiler, if you haven't seen this, it's a nearly 80-year-old 80 film, so whatever. Yeah. At the end, when he's found out that this friend of his, his employee, basically, has committed this crime, he's still treating him gently even though he's like yeah i'm not going to give you a break i'm not going to let you go you're going i'm calling the cops and everything not that i think you're going to get very far but he's still he doesn't totally turn he's a very sympathetic character he's kind which means i don't know how he got into insurance because even back even back then they are portraying the insurance business as being really horrible yeah Um, the way they treat people the way they treat her i mean i know barbara stanwick is a murderer in this but the way that the executive treats her, which we'll get to, is awful. Yeah. We, and, yeah. Yeah, we only have a couple other people really worthy of note in this film. Raymond Chandler's... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, we have Jean Heather. I guess it's Jean Heather. Plays Lola Dietrichson, who is the daughter of the husband that um, Barbara Stanwyck wants to get killed. Um, she's fine. She's there for five seconds. Um, she. Yeah, she doesn't do much. You know, she's... Honestly, she's a plot device. She doesn't have a lot of personality. No. She doesn't have a lot to do. No. She seems somewhat manipulative, too. So here we have a really big contrast between this week's film and last week's film, where last week's film, we were all like, wow, all the women in this film, all the women in the big sleep seem totally capable, could go out and do whatever they needed to do. Even if they were just a cab driver, they seemed like somebody in control of what they're doing. And here, all the women in this film are basically manipulating horror shows. But whatever. Well, Lola, I think, is the closest we have to an innocent in this, apart from having really bad judgment and bad taste in men. Yeah. She's but in love she with could... Nino, who's obviously yes, a boat anchor, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's awful. And there's also, you know, Tom Powers as as Mr. Dietrichson. He's there for five seconds. He's fine. Yeah, he gets about, he's on screen for like, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes total? I mean, really, honestly, he's only there so that we know that Mrs. Dietrichson's description of him is, in fact, correct. She's not making stuff up. She's not just trying it for the money. She, money. she really is actually unhappy because he's a jerk. Yeah. But yeah. she did marry him, so... Yeah. Then there, There's one p- person in this that kind of confuses me, and that's Richard Gaines as Mr. Norton, who is the uh, chief, the executive. Why does he who, confuse her? Because he doesn't act like anyone else in the movie. He ta- he, he acts... Like he's in a Howard Hawks movie. He talks really fast. <laughs> yeah. He talks really fast to get the point out, Max. See, I have to go keep going like this. It's like they said, okay, you've got four minutes to get all this dialogue out. Move. 
He I, talks really fast. He's much more exaggerated in the way he talks and his gestures. He's like a much more old school actor, and I think he was. Well, I, for me, he was on screen for literally thirty seconds. You he's know. in one scene, so it's not a big deal. No, but, I didn't you know. really notice him one way or the other. He was fine. I didn't. Care. I thought it was to interesting me, to see that there was a boss to Edward G. Robinson and what that might be like. The other one I like is Porter Hall as Mr. Jackson from Medford, Oregon. I'm from Medford, Oregon, and a Medford man. Sure. And this guy has been around. He has played villains in so many movies. Huh. He, The one I remember most clearly is he is the mean psychiatrist in Miracle on 34th Street who tries to get Santa declared insane. Okay. So... Hmm. He, and he is playing his usual sort of goofy yeah, accent, but he's not being a ba- he's not a heavy in this. It's unusual. Huh. I I'm not sure if I recognize him from anything, but I'm suddenly wondering if he he's wasn't w- in. No, he was not. I was wondering. He looked sort of like somebody who was in It's a Wonderful Life. Oh no, I don't think he's in that. No, he was but- in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah, he's in a bunch of other Billy Wilder movies. Billy Wilder liked him, or as much as he liked anybody. <laughs> as long as they drank, apparently he liked them just fine. Because uh, yeah. Billy Wilder was big on on drinking. But yeah, yeah, the cast is really three people, and then there's a couple other people thrown in. Yeah, and I I think I was a little bit more impressed than Max was, but that's fine. I will say, do you, actually why don't we get to this before I forget it? Yeah. So Fred McMurray walks in and he does his little Tex Avery thing and those two start plotting together. Did you buy their lust for each other? I bought their chemistry. Okay. I, I do think there was at least a physical attraction. I'm not sure if I buy that they were ever in love with each other. I, Even at the end. Well, at the end where she's basically going, no, no, I didn't, I didn't, but now I do. Um, yeah. Spoiler. Blam! Blam! Yeah. Which was a yeah. twist I did not see coming for two reasons. One, because, wow, all right, that's happening. And two, this is the 40s. You did not see women shot back then. That was... And this film had a lot of problems with the Hays Code. It actually, they tried to adapt it about 10 years before, and the Hays Code was like, <laughs> no. And they were like, well, let's try it again. And the Hays Code initially was like, no, unless you get rid of these couple things. Like, no scenes of the woman in the gas chamber, because, hey, guess what happened? Apparently she yeah. didn't get shot. I, although they let the her being shot in, which I was surprised about. So, hmm. Yeah, I wasn't sure I bought the lust. I can see okay. what you're saying about them working together. And him calling her baby every time. Um, them meeting up in the supermarket uh, as Henry Slinkman walked by looking for <laughs> turnips or, or clams oysters, or yeah. oysters, yeah. Um, I don't know if I bought him being so taken in by her that he would basically commit murder for her. The one thing I can, uh, the one reason I could see that is something you point out. I think this guy is very alone. Yeah. He does, he very clearly, if you look in his apartment, he's got like no pictures of people up. No. In the place, he obviously, I will bet you he has one dish, one set of silverware in the sink. One glass. One glass. I mean, he's, it's surprising when she finds a second glass. Yes. See, the place has no character. He just sort of exists. Yes, he thought and Louise. Mm, and in the, but with her, he has he has a connection. He is not, he's not alone. He's feeling something. And I guess, to be fair, there is potentially a lot of money coming. Especially when he there figures out how to, to make it double indemnity. Ooh. Yeah, it may not sound like a lot in the movie. It's a $50,000 policy in 1938 dollars. Nowadays, that'd be a, they'd look that up. That'd be a million dollars. Which, to be fair, that's a could nice be chunk better. of change. That's, a, that's yeah, but, for the 50000 Yeah. So they but get they, $2 million. Double, it's $2 million, yeah. So, yeah, so they could do pretty well. Certainly enough to run away for. I mean, you couldn't. Yep. Here's the sad part you couldn't buy that nice a house in a big city, but. No. Isn't that sad? Not these days. Pretty freaking sad, that is. Yeah, so I th- I'd say pretty decent performances all around. Maybe not the best we've seen even in a Wilder film, but pretty decent performances all around. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say this as far as the setting. I was looking at L.A. in this. i got to ask a question. Hmm? Where's all the people? <laughs> 
Oh, you know, LA is a pretty pretty much a ghost town by then, and you know, it hasn't really changed. Like at night on the on the streets when they're driving around, nobody. When they're walking around to you know various apartments, buildings, and coffee shops, nobody. It is the emptiest LA I have ever seen. But at yeah. least, and it rains an awful lot. Yeah, I know, doesn't it? All these noir films, I am amazed how much it rains in Southern California because that's not what yeah, I was led to believe. Especially mm. last year. Now, yeah, I heard it never rains in Southern California, but it pours, man, it pours. Yeah, when it pours. I am, maybe the weather was different back then. I don't know, or maybe just it's noir. You have to have rain at some point. So oh. yeah, it has to be dark and gloomy. And we spe- can't have bright sun. Speaking mm-hmm. of which, we start off the film pretty dark and gloomy because our protagonist, our top build actor basically wanders into a building, sits down, and starts confessing to what the film's all about, his having murdered. Yeah, this, and, it's a lot like Sunset Boulevard in that it, in effect, begins at the end. Yeah. and least, He's walking in with a funny-looking stain on the right arm of his jacket, yeah. which keeps getting bigger, sweating, staggering, and we find out, of course, he's bleeding to death. Well, and that's the sad part, is the wound that he's got probably mm-hmm. wouldn't take that much for him to not bleed to death, uh, if he, if now, if the bullet had hit the brachial artery in the arm, mm-hmm. you can die in up to 90 seconds. Well, obviously that's not true because he gets yeah. in a cab. He hails a cab, rides back to his office, gets in, goes up and sits down and spends an hour a and a half talking. A bullet wound in the arm can absolutely kill you. Oh, I know. It absolutely can. I'm just saying it wouldn't take that much effort to keep from dying. I think that, and that's a key point. If he'd got to a hospital first, they could have patched him up because clearly he's got enough wherewithal to get in a cab, get to his office, get into the office, and use a dictaphone for two hours or however long it is. Well, and what was that thing? Am I wrong, or did he pull out a wax cylinder and stick it in I that? Think, I think that was a wire recorder. A wire recorder? I'd understand. A wax cylinder? I don't think it was a wax cylinder recorder. Hey, Edison, not, not even in, in, got any in ether left? <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, I I think, though, that that's a point. I think that the point was that he could have done something and chose not to. Yeah, he chose, he's like, I'm done. You know, I've killed the woman I want to sleep with. I don't know. And the money. I, uh... Yeah, I've lost the money. He's lost everything. He's destroyed his career. He's betrayed his, his only friend. Yeah. Because he's, in effect, defrauding him. Yeah. But, and the company. But there's some interesting little character bits in here that make and there i think they're actually subtle enough that you might not you but a viewer might sort of pass over them and not really realize what's going on one of them is for uh edward g robinson and that's edward g robinson as i said being kind to neff at the end but not letting him go and not letting him just die because if he just dies yeah. he doesn't have to face the trial he doesn't have to face he says gas chamber apparently it was electric chair at the time but he doesn't have to face that part of the actual paying for his crime and keys is like yeah no you're not i like you but i don't like you that much it's obvious that yeah, by the way i think that's part of the that is part of the Hayes code they always want the criminal part of the Hayes code was criminals in movies have to face justice mm. And they could be killed, but it was. I think they probably were trying to placate them because of other stuff. Saying, "Look, see, he's going. He's going to be arrested and stand trial, and the system works. And hooray for us! We'll be back after this commercial message." Yeah. Uh, Mark seven. Mark seven. Uh, <laughs> sorry, those are deeper, deeper, deepers. But I think it's also a really interesting callback and enhancement of the Barton Keys character because, again, like you said. This is somebody who's scrupulously honest. And to the mm. very end, he's like, no, that's my thing. You're my friend. I really liked you, but I'm not going to bend myself even for this. So The interesting, to me, one of the fun, th- the fun and interesting things about Keys is when he starts out, you, you st- I started thinking he was going to be a bad guy, being a jerk, because there is this poor obviously Mexican truck driver who is in there wanting to know why his claim is being denied. And it starts out like, oh, here's the heartless insurance man who's found some loophole. It's like, no, we found evidence that you've set your truck on fire. Yeah. And the guy admits it. Yeah. And that's and you're going to sign this at this waiver, and we're you know basically we're not going to prosecute you for fraud, but you're going to say you're not going to file a claim. Yes, <laughs> sixty foot man, sure, right? <laughs> you wrecked my truck. Uh, sorry, that's War of the Colossal Beast. <laughs> uh, I often get those two films confused. 
You can see why. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. I, the, the Key's character is actually really interesting. And while I don't necessarily want a movie with him as the central character, I could easily see him being in multiple movies as sort of a like films a wrap around this guy. I don't know. He, he had a lot of depth and because a lot, and you could see that because also he's kind of the detective in this. He's the one who figures out what's going on. Every he's last the one part, <laughs> everything down to a remarkably, remarkable level of detail. Yeah. But cause the police originally are like, yeah, it was an accident. The uh, dumb executive who talks too fast is like, no, this was obviously a suicide. That's what happened. It was a suicide. See? <laughs> and, uh, keys is the one going, no, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't suicide. It was murder. Uh, it's pronounced. He's murder. the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he, the th- he finds really little things, but you go, oh yeah, like the fact there's a whole thing with Mr. Dietrich is wearing a cast on his leg yep. because he broke his leg. He broke his leg after he got the life insurance policy, which apparently is also a health insurance it policy. It was accidental, because it had accidents. That's right, an accident, yep. an accident policy, whatever they called them back then. And he broke his leg and didn't file a claim. And why wouldn't he do that? And that was the first, that's the thing that tips off uh, Keyes. Well, and the other thing he says, and this is also really interesting, and it's obvious that Keyes is smarter than Neff, is he's like, why would you choose to do it that way? You couldn't be sure you'd die. Yeah, the train's going 15 miles an hour. Why would you throw yourself off? She said, suicide can't happen. And he mentions we have, and this is true, the level of information they have about human death in the insurance industry is kind of terrifying. And he lists some of it, which is like, ah, okay, that's, you know. Hmm. Yep, how they subcategorize suicide, suicide by leaping, by poison, and every kind of, po- it's it's. Actually, really kind of bizarre. No, it's just the way he, when he's trying to talk Neff into taking a job in the office, and he's comparing being an insurance claims adjuster to being a surgeon or being a detective or being a a priest. And in those moments, it's like you can almost believe him. Mm. Just would have been a cut in pay, which is why he's like, yeah. Yeah. The other little character thing, and I think this actually it's subtle, but it's interesting is I think there actually is some regret in Walter Neff. And the reason I say that is at the very last minute after he's now killed Mrs. Dietrichson is he runs into Nino, who apparently was being manipulated by her as well. And he's coming up ostensibly to get between Dietrichson and Neff. And Neff just says, look, do yourself a favor, get out of here. You're being played as much as I were, was... Lola actually does love you. She's been trying to call you. Uh, go here. Here's where she's staying. Get out of here. You were never here. And he lets him I off get, the hook. I get why he did that, but I have to say, why did he do that? <laughs> because Nino is a jerk. Nino and is a jerk. And he treats Lola badly, and he has a dangerous temper. I mean, the reason... Phyllis uh, Dietrichson is using him is because she thinks he'll get so mad that he'll kill Lola. And this is the guy that he thinks she should be with. You think that he would kill Lola? That was her plan? I didn't get any yes, sense of that at all. That's what he said. He was talking to her about, it's like, you were going to wind him up so much, and eventually you were going to tell him where she was, and you knew what he would do. Oh. And the implication to me is he was hoping she would, because Lola has all these theories that could be a real problem for Phyllis, mm. including the really disturbing plot point that, Phyllis may have, in fact, murdered Dietrichson's first wife. Mm. Lola is, you know, her stepdaughter. Well, she was a showgirl, you know, colored yeah, feathers in yellow her hair, feathers and dress cut down yeah, to there. Uh, yeah. but, by the way, do you think that was just something out of Lola's imagination, or do you think that uh, she was cold-blooded enough to do that? Oh, I believe that she was cold-blooded enough to do that. Yeah. I, I even believe at the very end her bit about, I didn't love you, but now I do. I do, I do. Blam, blam. I, don't, I think that was just her trying not to get shot. I don't think there was... But she didn't. She didn't know he had a gun. He didn't drawn a gun. I don't buy it. In fact, in fact, we don't know he has a gun until we hear the shots. We never see him with one. I see. I try. I remember him actually showing it before he went in. But that she wouldn't have seen it. She certainly has one. I, she's so reptilian. I just can't. I don't know. My I, this is where we're going to disagree. I don't think she did. I think it was a as a desperation plea. Um, I think that's true too. I think she's a sociopath. Well, but hmm. I think for a moment she had she could no, have a soci- killed him, and why didn't she? 
Because she's yeah. got nowhere to because bl- what's his name isn't here yet, and she can't blame it on him. Because I thought that's why he was coming that night was specifically yeah, I'm sure to that deal was with it. Meth. Was gonna, yeah. I, I don't know. It's kind of there's a couple of tweaks that I would like to have seen. One of them was in the Nino character. If we had seen some little hint of desperation or some, some sympathy with that character to make him to make us understand why he was so uptight, having lost his mm. job and you know blah 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 blah, I think we might have been able to side with him a little better, and it would have been a, a stronger character. Yeah. And also this whole throwing this oh no I really love you Bart at the end we needed something some I didn't. I didn't fully mm. buy it, but they get, then again, why else would she do it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah I would have liked a little clarification. They could have also done it, I think, through the, just through the acting a little more. Yeah, I would say that the, in general, the dialogue is good and playful, but it's also heavy and aggressive. There was one. Um, really suggestive line that I'm like, how did this get past the Hayes Code? Because it's, I bet coupled, I know which one. it's coupled with... All right, so picture Fred McMurray and um, Barbara Stanwyck, and he's just met her, and he's trying to get her to let him stay and, you know, do things. And one of the things he offers to do, and after he says this line, as he's looking to her, he looks down. And what he <laughs> says is, I could run the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I was just like, um, did he just say what I think he said? Did he mean what I, I think he did? That's dirty. Oh, see, that's not the one I was thinking of. I was the thinking of the one where, you know, she's talking about my my husband usually does that. He says, well, anytime his thumbs get tired. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then later on, there's a shot where she's gone to his apartment and we cut away. And all we see then, she's there, everyone's perfectly dressed. But she's reapplying her makeup, and that to me mm-hmm. is Hayes Code for oh, they totally did it, dude. Yeah. Do you think so? I, I absolutely think yeah. so. Boy, it's amazing how subtle you had to be back then. And you know what? I kind of like it better that way. Because <laughs> well, what did they do? And it was like how I I think that what they did was actually pretty um, sweaty. Let's put it that way. But we'll never yeah. we'll never know because it's all in our little our little man in our head. I'm sorry, our <laughs> stomach is the only one who knows. Ew. It is a it is a strange thing about this movie in that we are in effect supposed to be. I don't know if you could use the term sympathizing with, but we're supposed to be invested in two cold blooded murderers. Yeah, these are the people that we're following, and when things go wrong for them, we get tense. Mm. There's that sequence where. Uh, Keys comes over to the apartment after the murder, and he wants to talk to uh, Neff, and uh, she's coming over. Phyllis doesn't know that Keys is there, but she arrives at the at the door. She hears him, and then when he's leaving, she's hiding behind the apartment door in the hall, and you're like, "Oh God, what if he sees?" It? And it's like, "Wait a minute." Wouldn't that be a good thing? I know. Wait, what? It's like we, we kind of don't want them to get caught, or at least we don't want McMurray to get caught. I don't know if we mind if Barbara Stanwyck gets caught, although I think it's they're kind of a uh, match. They're kind of a set in this. I mean, I mean, technically, she didn't actually do anything but plot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, except we, she well, may have murdered the the wife. We don't know. She's an accessory, sure, yeah. an instigator. But she, mm-hmm. but we. Or when the actual murder is taking place, and they have dumped his body, and it's all going great, and they try to start the car, and it doesn't start. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, some of these shorts are full of bricks right about now. Yeah, got to wear the brown pants that day. Uh, and we know it's a blue suit because they tell us. And it's obvious that it's just the car is not properly in neutral or whatever they had back then. But still, it actually reminds but me of that. we're worried for them. I know. We're like, oh no, let the car start. Let the, what am I saying? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that scene in Psycho, the only funny scene in the film, where he's killed off Janet Lee and he's put her in the trunk of the car and he's pushed it into the swamp and he's standing there watching it sink and then it suddenly stops. <laughs> and they just cut to uh, Anthony Perkins and he's like, uh... And he looks back well, to the car, and the car's just sitting there. They cut back to Anthony Perkins, and he's like, uh... And then finally <laughs> the car goes back down into the, the swamp. And we we kind of feel bad for him, too, yeah. even though it's like we just saw him. Well, actually, we don't know at that point that he's murdered. We think it's the mother. But, yeah. Or, well, quite honestly, I don't think anybody that has seen that film starting from 1970 on thought it was the mother, because we all yeah. knew. So, yeah, you're right. We do have sympathy, and I don't know why. Um, but it's, I guess that's the way this, that Wilder tells stories. He makes us care about yeah. people that we shouldn't. 
And he, well, we see everything from McMurray's perspective. Like I yeah. say, he's the protagonist. It's, you have you have to empathize with the protagonist, or the movie's boring. Well, and I think also in his dictation, we do get the impression not only from him and letting Nino off the hook, but we get the impression that there is sorrow in his part, not least of which for basically turning on his friend Keys, which is why I think he's yeah. doing it. He's like, you know what? You, I should have realized, actually, my note was, I think that Neff should have married Keys. <laughs> because <laughs> It would have been a nice couple. Name me another noir film that ends with one guy telling another guy that he loves him. Because <laughs> that never freaking well, happens. Could be a start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, it's not the same thing. That's friendship. No. There's a very... very no, he actually uses the word love, and you don't hear that. You no. don't hear that in the sort of, but you've actually, in that era, you never heard men say that to other men at all. No, that's, that's bad. That's, that's, that's the gay people. Shh. But of course, we all know that they wouldn't exist till the 1960s. Yep, they hadn't been invented yet. Also, there's a couple of things that popped up, little details that popped up, one of which is something that is starting to drive me nuts, depending on the film, and that is, Walter Neff touches everything. <laughs> Yes. Fingerprints, what are those? They were using those in 1938. They sure were, and if anyone wanted to look, they're everywhere. Everywhere. He yeah. just makes no no gloves, no attempts, nothing. And, yeah. Then the other one, and at first I thought, wow, that's a really clever idea. When he goes off to commit the murder, he takes two little pieces of, I think it was actually his business card, and he sticks mm. him between the clangor and the bell of both his door and of his phone, knowing that if the bell is rung for somebody either visiting or calling, that he'll know and he can come up with some reason why he wasn't yeah. there. The only problem is I don't think that works. And the reason I don't think it works is that it's actually a plot point in the Andromeda strain. <laughs> oh. Because they don't know that there's this this message that's come through the only reason anybody knows anything happens because the bell rings and a little sliver of paper has gotten between the clapper and the bell causing it not to ring so i'm like it looks cool i think it's clever i don't think it works yeah maybe it's, it works sometimes but what else can he do i mean they had no answering machines no caller id how else are you going to know if someone actually placed a call i thought it was interesting that the bell for the phone wasn't part of the phone it was a unit on the wall yeah I mean, it would have been a lot harder. You could have done the same thing in a phone, but yeah, back then. It would have been a lot good more old, work. Good old candlesticks, right? Uh, I am uh, pretty much at the end of mine. Oh, I did have one more note. I'm sorry. We have. There's one major set in this, and that's the uh, the insurance company building. And I think it's a really interesting set because it's got this open middle and then this walkway around the outside so that you can yeah. tell the level of the employees there. And Neff is on the upper level and he's with keys. And it's a very detailed set. It is obviously a set, but that's okay. Yeah. The other set that stuck out was the time when he and Lola go off to the forest. Oh, hang out around the Hollywood Bowl. Well, sure. But n I have never seen anything that looked more like a set in my life. It's like, isn't it lovely, this movie screen here at night? <laughs> it was just yeah. bad. No, I mean, you know, it had yeah. stuff happen. That, was was that was a little jarring. Yeah. How about you? Any, any more notes, or should we get to the... End. I think that's it, except for the, the fact that he kills her at the end is incredibly dark, especially for that era, but it's pure noir. Yeah, very noir, which is one of the reasons yeah, a lot of people... I actually didn't see that in the, in the trivia. Somebody told me that this was considered the first noir film, but I didn't see anything huh. about the, that in the trivia, so we'll, we'll just ignore that part. Okay. Otherwise, I, all I have to say yeah. is... The finish! So, Max! Yeah. Well, a discount when you saw it in the 80s. It was a long time ago. Yep. You probably don't remember your reaction then. But what do you think now? Now that you've sat there and, and critically watched this film, what do you think of Double Indemnity? I can see why this started such a trend. Yeah. I mean, the style is so unusual, It's so, especially for the time. The, all the stuff with light and dark and so many shadows. It looks really cool. I still have a little trouble with Fred McMurray. I think he's just a little bit stiff in the part. I, I think playing, again, casting against type is very cool, because, but sometimes it doesn't quite work. Even someone like Wilder, who's really good at it. I mean, it's like, again, casting Edward G. Robinson as, in effect, the only really good guy in this. That was surprising, and it worked. Uh, but I think the, all, the other performances, I think, are terrific. Uh, 
I think it's it's really interesting. I I think it's fascinating that they can make an insurance agent an action actual character who we care about. Not that Max is anything against insurance agents. I've dealt with enough of them. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm sure there are plenty of nice ones out there, but uh, I I like it. I think it works. I I wouldn't say it's my favorite of the noir films we've seen, but I think it's really good. What about you? I don't count my fever dream because you know you forget things. I think, especially if you're going to look at Wilder films, and I think Wilder at this point is the director that we've scrutinized the most on this show. I could be wrong, but I think he is. He might be. I think if you look at Wilder films, just those, it's good, but it's not great. That's my feeling. Mm. I, yeah. I'm a little better on the performances by McMurray and like, Barbara Stanwyck than I think you were. We both loved Edward G. Robinson. Yep. And I, you know... Part of me is sitting there like, at any point, is he going to like reach into his clo- closet, pull out a machine gun and go, yeah, see, I'm going to take you all down. Take you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, he, I like the character. I think there's actually a lot of depth there. I don't know how much of it was written and how much is Robinson, because I do want to know more about him. And I, he's, you know, to be fair, the only sympathetic character. I think the plot's very good. You know, I think that it is... Not that big a twist when it comes, though, that Dietrichson is not exactly trying to play fair with Neff. And I think for me that maybe that level of twist and, I don't know, the danger isn't as high as it will be. And it's the film, let's be face it, this is the least subtle Wilder film we've watched yet. Right, I think yeah. Sunset Boulevard, yeah, Lot Sutler, and I forget what the other one we watched. I think we've actually watched four so it's of you, if you're going to look for noir films, I think there's better stuff out there, but it's still good. And it probably yeah. did break a lot of ground. It's yeah, just, if you, especially from a historical perspective, definitely want to see this. If you were all into noir, if this isn't the first, it's certainly one of the, the primary ancestors. Yeah. And let's face it. Chandler is almost too Chandler. Like some of the dialogue is like, so him that it's like, could, it's could, very Raymond Chandler. Could, could we add a little water to that? Can we, uh, <laughs> can we Campbell soup this stuff? Cause it's a little heavy. water the bourbon down just a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, if you're a noir aficionado, if you're a completist by all means, I wouldn't put it at the top of the, of the list. Uh, certainly not even of the films that we've seen so far, quite honestly. And a lot of people are going to get flack for this. I think the long goodbye was a better noir film than this was. Um, I think this has stronger elements and it uses the black and white better, but I think I like the story and I like the characters better in Long Goodbye than I like this. Interesting. So, but that's all well and good. What we really want though is answers to our poll question. And this time what we really want to know is what was the worst movie viewing experience you ever had? Was it the movie itself, the venue, the patrons, or a combination of all three? And you can tell us in so many ways, such as email us directly, us at maxmikemovies.com. Don't be, don't leave us alone with just Patton Oswalt, while you too can email us. Well, Patton Oswalt's <laughs> staff, anyway. And we'll tell you that story later, maybe, if it comes up. Probably. Maybe. Anyway, email us directly. Probably. Probably. And you can give us hints for ideas for other shows, for other series, for movies like, hey, why didn't you guys watch this one? We're actually going to be extending this series because of your suggestions to one of our yep. uh, poll, quen- uh, poll question answers. Poll questions. You can also go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, leave a comment there, like Vince does. Have a nice little conversation with Vince. He likes to talk to people online and if you also want to uh look at us on facebook we're there too because that's still the last holdout of i'm gonna go with least objectionable social media and you can also find our podcast on pretty much any podcast app that has existed will exist or will soon exist and then not exist and then come back later as a sequel to itself but we're deep in the middle of walk the dark street max what dark street are we going to walk next week? Well, they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. On Broadway. But we're not going to Broadway. Oh, you. So I don't know why I brought that up. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> we're going to the real source of noir. Where noir really came from. And where was that? Comic books! Huh? <laughs> no. We are going to... And I'd always swore that I wasn't going to do this. I wasn't going to play them. I ain't going to play Sin City. But yes, we are going down to Sin City. You're not making me watch Showgirls again, are you? No, 
we're, we're going down to Sin City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. Um, I don't think that's to go how to that Frank goes. Miller's, <laughs> Frank Miller's loving tribute to himself. To, 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 to well, yes, Frank Frank Miller's loving problematic tribute to noir, Sin City. Hmm. Directed by a bunch of people, mainly Robert Rodriguez. Oh, Roberto Rodriguez? Roberto Rodriguez. I've never seen it. I've read the comic, I've met the man, but I've never seen the movie. Yeah, well, we'll see what you think. You know, it stars everyone's favorite monkey, Mickey Dolenz. No, wait, Don't think that's right. right. (laughs) Mickey Rourke. Eh, Mickey Rourke, Mickey Dolenz, same thing. I'm going to go with no. Well, whatever it is, we're going to see how wrong Mike is about everything, as usual. And we're going to take us a trip down. You're going to take the last train to Sin City? (laughs) Yes, yes, we are, in fact, going to take the last train to Sin City. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and the movie wrench.